Blast and Blast Conversations is back. Season three, episode five. And this is a name that is going to be very familiar if you are in the hunting community or the conservation community of Florida. Mike Elfenbein is joining us on the show today. I've known Mike for several years now. Uh, he was generous enough to let me come down to his house. We spent a long, long time together chatting about everything under the sun from his days fishing to how he got into conservation to what's on his heart right now, what he's chasing. And I think you guys are really going to appreciate just the genuineness and the authenticity of Mr. Mike Elfenbein coming at you right now. Mike Elfenbein, how are you? I'm great, Travis Thompson. How are you? I'm good. First question, you've listened to these. Who is Mike Elfenbein? Mike Elfenbein is a family man who uh, was born and raised in Florida and has found himself in a position where uh, he's trying to do everything he can to make this place better for the family that he loves. Uh, Florida native. Yes. Well, I, I use that native term loosely. Um have a friend named Betty Osceola. She's probably more native than I am. She, <laughs> she, she'd probably scoff at me using that term. But yeah, bo- I was born and raised here in by, Florida. By definition of the word, yes, yes. But I get exactly where you're going there. Yes. Um, and if you guys aren't familiar with Betty Osceola, you should check her out. She was recently on uh, our friend Gabby Hoffman's podcast. She was. I'll try to put a link to that if I remember in the show notes. So um, before we get into unpacking who Mike Elfenbein is, the Mike Elfenbein story. That sounds like a Lifetime movie to me. Oh, boy. Um, Before we get into that, I want to, we got to set the baseline. You've heard these questions. Bring it. Pineapple on a pizza. Negative. No. No Did you know that was the right answer and you're just appeasing me here? No, 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 no. Bacon, ham, onions, maybe. Meat meat for the most part. Okay. Um, That's the right answer. I just don't understand why there's so many misguided people out there working with our resources and they can't make this simple decision about pineapple on a pizza. Yeah, you'd think that'd be an easy one. That should be part of the interview process. I think. <laughs> um, you've, you're known in the hunting community. Like you're, you're more known in the hunting community, but you're a fisherman as well, right? Uh, yes. That, that was my start in conservation. Uh, so growing up in Miami, I, I had, I had a great opportunity as a, as a younger version of me to fish and work on a charter fishing boat for several years. And, um, that kind of opened my eyes to exactly what conservation meant and why it was so important. So, wow, I got too serious too quick. The question was really, what's your boat or blind snack? Uh, like you're going out, I know you're a turkey hunter. We're recording the this at the tail end of turkey season. First thing that goes into my vest is an orange. Really? Yeah. Florida orange or you, you just, you don't uh, care I like anymore. those little halos. Okay. Yeah. The halos, little, those little mandarins. Those, yep. those are my favorite. The little really sweet ones. Yeah. Um, and then do you eat little Debbie's? I do. What's your, what's your go-to little Debbie's? Zebra he got cakes. excited right there. What's your video and your expression? <laughs> zebra cakes. Definitely. Zebra cakes. Definitely zebra cakes. That's like, it's not sexy, but it's solid. Yeah, it's good. It's always, it's always the same, right? Yeah. It's consistent day in, day out. For sure. So, I, the question I wrote is, let's start with the Mike Elfenbein story. Where'd you grow up? So tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into to growing up. Did you hunt and fish? Like, like where, yeah, where, so where? I, I didn't grow up hunting. I grew up fishing. Um, I was born and raised in Miami in a little, little part of Miami called Kendall Lakes. Um, and I was lucky I grew up on a lake. I, I had the opportunity to have water in my backyard. I could come home from, from school and uh, walk 
put my book bag down and walk right out the back door with a fishing rod in my hand and be catching bass and eventually peacocks when the state put peacocks in. And, um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, there was exotics. We had cichlids and Oscars, but not at the level we have today. Um, so fishing was really my, uh, gateway to the outdoors. Um, and hunting didn't become a thing until my late teens. Um, uh, but fishing gave me the the opportunity to uh, appreciate nature. I guess is the, how, how did you get into hunting? Uh, so I worked on a charter fishing boat, and um, well, tell tell us about that. Like, so say you you went to work on a charter fishing boat. Was that inshore? Was it no, offshore? it was offshore. It was a forty six foot. Well, so when we when I started, it was a thirty eight foot Bertram. Um, we ran out of Crandon Park Marina, um, and over time, that thirty eight foot. Uh, Bertram became a 46-foot Bertram. Um, so fishing just was part of me. It was uh, it was all I ever wanted to do. I just wanted to fish, 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 fish. Um, and uh, as, we, as I know now and as most people know, that there's a mix there between the fishing community and the hunting community. You know, Overlap. Mo- yeah. M- most fishermen that I knew uh, enjoyed hunting and vice versa. The hunters I met enjoyed fishing. Uh, so one day, uh, one of the guys we work with down there on the charter boat dock says, Hey, I'm going, I'm going hunting in the morning in this place called big Cypress. And I was like, Oh, okay. He's like, you want to go? It's like, sure. What do I need? He goes, just get yourself some camos and some boots. So I went to the store. I got myself a camo t-shirt and camo pants and a pair of lacrosse boots. And, uh, I'll, uh, to, to this day, I'll never forget the story. He, he still calls me two left feet, but, um, we, we went. Uh, it was a turkey hunt. It was a turkey hunt. And um, we put in there in, in Big Cypress, Monroe Station. Um, and we went north. And I, can, I still remember this day vividly. Vividly, I, I remember the day as we got out of the truck on the side of the Tamiami Trail and turned the lights off. And it was just absolute darkness. And he goes, all right, let's go. And I was like, well, what do you mean, let's go? He goes, yeah, we're going. I said, where? He goes, that way. Just follow me. I said, all right, I, what do I know, right? So we, we're walking through the woods. It's a big prairie, and um, we get, I don't know, we get about a half a mile, and I, I said, I said, hey, man, I got to stop. He goes, what's the matter with you? I said, my feet hurt. He goes, you're you just not used to walking. I said, no, man, something's not right. My feet hurt. He turns on his flashlight. He looks down. He goes, that's because you got the wrong shoe on the wrong foot. You put your shoes on <laughs> I put back. my right shoe on my left <laughs> foot and my left shoe on my right foot, and uh so that was my first hunting experience, and um, now now most of turkey season I hunt. Uh, it's part of what I do. It's become who I am, and it's kind of been the catalyst for why I'm involved in conservation efforts. So, so I want to follow up on the fishing really quick. The the boat you worked on, were you guys doing bottom fishing? Were you doing trolling? What were uh, we did everything. Uh, sail fishing. Uh, the the captain I worked for, his name's Frank Godwin. He's he's not with us anymore. Um, his thing, his what he was known for was uh, trolling for groupers. Okay. Uh, in the shallows down, um, you know. Those big, long plugs. Yeah, big, long stretch. Those yep. mans, and uh, we'd fish wire line, you know, and. Um, we just troll up and down the reef all day and he was a little different. You know, most people do that. They'll troll like 30 feet of water, 40 feet of water, 50 feet of water. Not Frank. It was 30 or shallower. He'd never go out. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, vividly watching these coral heads, he'd weave in and out of them, you know, and you'd look over the side of the boat and you'd see this big head and that you'd watch for that plug to go right by it, you know, and 
Yeah, fish on. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. You know, it's funny. Um, I've had this conversation with Dan Daniels, who's been on our Tuesday show before. I have this theory that historically, the offshore fishermen gravitated towards Hunter more than the inshore did, because in the winter you get more of those windy days when it's harder to be offshore and you got to find something to do outside. And so you, you gravitate. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's always kind of been a working hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I probably met my fair share of inshore fishermen. Agreed. that like to hunt too. Agreed. Um, I'm but, an inshore fisherman. And I love to hunt. Yeah. But, um, it was just, a, it was an interesting theory kind of, kind of bouncing around. Um, you mentioned turkeys. Yeah. That's your favorite thing to hunt. Uh, my favorite thing. And like, you, if I could do one thing for the rest of my life, it, that'd be it, for sure. Now, you've also gotten your whole family involved in it, right? Oh, yeah. So, have they all killed turkeys at this point? Yeah. So, um, it, it's kind of a joke here in this house, but turkey hunting used to be what I did, right? I left the family here, and I'd go turkey hunting. Um, and slowly but surely, the kids got involved. And then um, my wife saw me leaving with the kids on the weekends, and she's like, all right. I'm going to give it a shot, you know? So the resistance turned into acceptance. And uh, now my turkey seasons um, are don't start until my wife and kids get their turkey out of the way. <laughs> so here I find myself two weeks to the end of the season, and I finally get to have a chance to take a crack at I'm, it. I'm in that same boat, too. Like, Will's after a turkey hard. And so I haven't killed a turkey in several years because we're trying to get Will a turkey, and it's just been a, it's been a fiasco. The, the FWC, they uh, a few years ago, they started that youth hunt, mm-hmm. um, and that's been a blessing, right? Huge, right? Yeah, especially down here in the south where we get to start now to turkey hunt the last week of February. Yeah. Um, and usually you're on hot birds, so it makes that a little bit easier, for, especially for a youth. And so I have the ability to get my kids out of the way early, um, focus on my wife, and then I enjoy taking you – know, every year I'll take one or two new hunters out with me um usually a kid um last last weekend we were with a friend and he had his 13 year old son and he never shot a turkey he still hasn't but uh but he got to experience <laughs> he it got, yeah he got to experience it did they, did they get to hear gobble yes that's yes that's a big part of the experience yeah. and our mutual friend uh ann gordon vega i know she talked to you she got into turkey hunting this year yeah we interviewed her last year about pythons but i know she she was like picking your brain about turkey tips and stuff she, she was go, and she hunted i think three or four days and didn't no. I don't think they ever saw a bird close, but she was like, okay, this is fun. I'm yeah. into this. And I remember she put out, a, before the season started, she was desperately looking for ammo, and I'd stop in stores. I'd call her on the phone. Hey, Ann, I'm at the store. What what'd you say you needed? You know? And she's like, oh, I got it already. <laughs> I was supposed to ship her some. I had some waterfowl bismuth loads that were like a number five or something. They would have worked. Sure. But they were two and three quarters. And she, someone else down there got her some before I, I got yeah. shipped to her. But, yeah, no, it's turkey hunting is such a unique thing. Um where do you turkey hunt like without giving a specific spot but is it a south florida thing is it an all over the state thing do you just go wherever a turkey gobbles okay um i consider big cypress my home turf um i don't spend nearly as much time there hunting as i used to um for many reasons just life pulls you in different directions but uh pretty much peninsular florida it's where i love to hunt um when my kids were younger before they were born i'd travel out west uh, nebraska kansas uh, missouri Um, but these days i'm pretty much anchored here in florida it's where i spend my time you mentioned big cypress being your home kind of your your home piece like if, if someone said mike where is your florida I would think Big Cypress is where you would say. Right? Yeah, definitely. 
Um, and you become synonymous in some of the advocacy parts of the world with Big Cypress for sure. so, so much of your work there. When did you fall in love with that place? Uh, when I told you what just happened for that trip, that first trip in the dark, looking at the stars, watching the sun rise. Um, I didn't know anything about where I was. And in fact, if, if that day, if you had told me to go back to where we were, I probably couldn't have found my way back there. But, um, having someone just sit me there and say, Hey, just sit here and wait for me to come back, you know, and sitting there and, and watching the world wake up. Yeah. Just, that was amazing. That, that you can't i that impression is 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 indelible it's it's there forever what makes big cypress so special there's nothing like it anywhere why um, like, like tell somebody listening to this that's in mississippi or maryland or whatever like what um, makes it so special big, big cypress embodies what old florida is if you take that image in your mind of old florida with the big cypress trees and the oak hammocks and it, it's it's just raw. It's um, it's not untouched by man, but re, despite man's presence, it still remains natural. It still holds its value. Um, it's a working system. It's um, I think from the conservation perspective, it's a model of what it is that we're trying to do to the rest of Florida and keep it and conserve it in its state for perpetuity um and the big cypress embodies that it's it's that example so you went uh you went to dc last year i did i guess maybe it was 18 months ago. it yeah, was last pre-covid October, yes yeah. um tell us tell us about that experience like like why did you go what was the purpose of it and then how was it so i'll take it a step back before I answer that question. Okay. So I started my journey in conservation um, as a volunteer initially for an organization called the Fishing and Conservation Trust. Fact, I don't think that organization exists anymore, but that organization created a fishing tournament called the Metropolitan South Florida Fishing Tournament. Yep, I've heard Uh, of it. It was known as the Met. It was uh, the world's largest free fishing tournament. Very famous fishing tournament. Very famous. All kinds of uh, notable people Yeah, like celebrities would participate, but also like celebrity guides, like everyone who was anyone affiliated with it Yeah, the foot pallets of the world, right? All of those people can And you wanted to win the Met. Yeah, it was was huge, right? So my beginnings were with FACT, the Met tournament. and eventually, I became the executive director of that tournament. I went from a volunteer to a you know committee person to executive director, and from there, I started to evolve into the greater conservation. Right, not just the fishing part, but the fact that the f- water and the land coexisted together. And there was a point where you had to make a decision or I felt I had to make a decision as to whether this was going to be something that was casual, that I was just going to kind of hover around and maybe, maybe, you know, show up to a banquet every once in a while. And maybe I was going to bid on something and, you know, it'd feel good that I bought something and the money went. I say throw your money over the wall and I don't mean that derogatory, but that, that kind of that mindset. Right. Or did, did, did I want to make more of it? Did I want to make, make it more uh, meaningful. So at some point I decided I wanted to make it more meaningful. And as you do that, 
you realize that you're going further down the rabbit hole, right? <laughs> it just, it's never ending. It, it consumes you. So the decision is, is, is all the steps that I took to get here, do I just want to stop here or do I really want to make an impact? And if I wanted to make an impact, how far am I willing to go? And I don't know what the answer is. And I don't, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, Mike, who appointed you to do this stuff? I don't know, man. It's just something innate inside of me that is telling me that this is what I'm supposed to do. There's, I can't, there's not an explanation. Nobody's, nobody's told me, Mike, you're appointed to this. You have to do it. Um, so in dealing with the Big Cypress, which has kind of been my focus over the years, and the Big Cypress being managed by the federal government, the National Park Service, um, it was always explained to me at every level that if I wanted to make an impact on the way the Big Cypress was managed and how things were done there to conserve it, that I had to engage in D.C. I had to engage with Congress. I had to engage with the Department of Interior. I had to engage with the National Park Service. And all those people are in Washington. So Everglades Restoration, um, which doesn't really directly impact Big Cypress, or it didn't at the time, now more so because we have a project called WERP, Western Everglades Restoration. Came on, it was on the radar, right? And it was a big thing. Um, a couple of years ago, we had that issue where the government put out a memorandum suggesting that they were going to have to confiscate people's private property in order to achieve restoration goals. Um, and that just kind of, that was like the springboard. It, it pushed me over the edge, right? Um, and people told me, Mike, if you want to make a difference, there's an opportunity. Uh, there's an Everglades Restoration Task Force meeting in Washington, D.C. Um, you, you, you might consider being there. So that's pretty much the road, the path that put me in Washington, D.C. How, how was, well, let me ask this question first. Explain... Because you, you, you went by it pretty quick. Um, basically, there was a memo talking about using, what was it, eminent domain? Or like to take people's camps. It, so in Big Cypress, in this national national preserve, people have inholdings. Like like someone like you could have a camp out there. Right. right? Like, like average people. So before the preserve became the preserve, um, it was just kind of like the wild, wild west. Um, it was land. It was there. Um, and people used it. They built camps in the preserve that were their weekend getaways and they'd take their families out there and they'd hunt and they'd fish and they'd buggy ride. And they essentially made the connection with the landscape that eventually led to sportsmen being so heavily involved in conserving that area and creating the preserve that we have today. So, um, when the preserve was created in 74, the government gave people an opportunity to keep their private property. Um, they had set different parameters by which those people could be grandfathered in, and they were. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Some of them just walked away and said to hell with it. Um, others kept their properties. Um, they paid taxes on their properties. Um, and over time, the Park Service kind of chipped away at that. They'd come in and offer you money for your camp. And some people would take the money and the Park Service would come in and the camp was gone. Um, some camps were saved. There was a very famous person. Uh, his name is Cal Stone, who um, was kind of the point of the spear for, for the conservation and preservation efforts um, of Big Cypress as far as the sportsman community was concerned. 
and that camp was purchased and actually uh, saved. I say saved simply because it's still there, but if you went and looked at it today, uh, you'd probably hang your head a little because like with many other aspects of the federal government, they tend to forget to take care of things that they're supposed to. Um, and Cal Stone's camp is kind of a symbolism for what many people, myself included, feel uh, the preserve has become, right? The federal government came in, they bought the land, just like they bought Cal Stone's camp. And over time, for many different reasons, some of them not their fault, um, they've been neglected, right? The camp's been neglected, so has the preserve been neglected. Um, so if you stand and look at Cal Stone's camp today and the condition that it's in, it's kind of a great symbolism over the overall preserve and the condition that it's in. So you get to well, – the other clarification I wanted to make was a throwaway thing you said earlier, but describe what a buggy is because I think there's some folks that are not in South Florida that when they hear the term buggy, they think like a doom buggy, like people racing around. Describe what a buggy is. Yeah, so uh, a, a buggy – well, the original buggies were built on Model A's. I mean, if you look at all the old pictures of what an what an original swamp buggy was, um, you'd find it hard to believe that something like that was able to traverse the landscape. Um, you know, and over time they've evolved, and and no two buggies are alike. Um, but a, a buggy essentially is, in most cases, it's the the frame and parts of a four wheel drive truck, sometimes two wheel drive, um, sometimes a Jeep, sometimes a Ford or a Chevy. Um, it's rudimentary. There's not all kinds of bells and whistles. It's just a platform with a motor and a transmission and uh, like a, a pontoon boat. Then, like the top of a pontoon boat stuck on top of it, right? Yeah, like pretty it's much. A, a flat, it's, yeah, flat deck with seats on it, and uh, you know, maybe you may or may not have a, a, a bimini top or some kind of canopy over you, but it's just um, they're not fast. Um, not generally speaking. Yeah, yeah no. What, There's 20 miles an hour, maybe top speed. Yeah, so you have like Palm Beach buggies, which are a little bit more flashy and probably yeah. might go a little bit faster and have more bells and whistles. But the, and they're not road safe. They're not something you nah, drive up and down the highway. Nah, but nah. I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't want people, when you say people buggy riding, there's some subset of the audience that would say, well, that could be bad for the ecosystem. This is not a thing where you're going out and tearing up yeah. So no, no. And in fact, buggies are, buggies are used, um, by the Miccosukee tribe, the by the Seminole them, tribe, yeah. by the agencies, you know, the national park service, oh. if they didn't have buggies, they, there wouldn't be an ability to manage the preserve at any level. Yeah. No buggies are not intended to be destructive. They're just a, a, a means of transportation. So I hijacked you there. You get to DC. How was that experience once you got there? Um, it was, it was, it was, cool it, it was it was i mean um yeah it's the big swamp right so i left the swamp in florida and i went to the swamp in dc um i took my wife um and i in addition to that whole everglades restoration task force meeting i took the time to make appointments with different people in the agencies Department of the Interior. Um, yep. I went and met with Department at the, of the Interior. Um, most of those folks aren't there anymore because of the change in administration. Um, I got it was I got a firsthand look at the Department of Interior, literally. Um, got a rooftop tour where you could see the entirety of Washington, D.C. 
um, got, you know, walked through the halls and knocked on doors and this is our attorney and this is our director. And, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Super cool. Um, got a chance to meet with the folks at Safari club international. Uh, they have an office in DC, sat and talked with them. Cyrus the Baird and, and yeah. Laird. um, Ben Cassidy was who we met with a yeah. uh, super good dude. They're, um, very much dedicated to sportsmen, conservation and hunters. Um, they are the first for hunters. Um, they do a, a phenomenal job. Um, and met with my congressman, Greg Stubbe, uh, met with different uh, staffers in different uh, legislators' offices, uh, and then, of course, got to go to this Everglades Restoration Task Force meeting in this giant hall at the Department of Interior in their building. Um, and, and got yeah, It looks to, like an auditorium. Almost. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge auditorium, very uh, intricate, elegant, very nice. And you get three minutes to speak. Uh, yeah, you get three minutes to speak. <laughs> Um, but it's cool you get to meet and talk to uh, all the different moving parts of Everglades Restoration. You know, the people who sit in, in desks and cubicles in Washington that you don't usually get a chance to interact with. So um, it was a great experience. I, I would say it's definitely um, pushed me further down the rabbit hole, um, right? You make these incremental advances in your efforts and you come to a point where you have to decide, do I keep pursuing this or is this, have I, have I maxed out? Right. And, uh, if, if you look at it and say you maxed out, well, then what was the whole point of all those years of effort? Right. Because this conversation never ends. That's the reality of it. This is a, a lifelong commitment. It's infinite. Yeah. It's an infinite game. There's no scoreboard at the end of an inning. No, like it's infinite. Yeah. Um, so dovetail your DC trip. Shortly after that, you and I were on a call together and it was, you were typical Mike, like you were, you were fired up, but when you get fired up, you get passionate. Like you get all, you're so authentic anyway. That's part of what makes us buddies Yeah, is you're real. But we were in a, it was a, it was a work meeting somewhere and I was actually on video. You were in the room and they, uh, you were talking about, there was some new engineers with the core or somebody that was involved in the process. And you started talking to them about touching this land and experiencing this land and why that's so important. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then we're going to go into talking about the field trips. Yeah. So, um, you know, just like when you go to DC or when I went to DC or when you speak to congressional staffers or even our state representatives and their staffers as a guy who knows the system intimately, right. Um, because I'm immersed in it. When you have a conversation with these folks, to me, it's clear that there's, most people would probably identify it as a breakdown in communication. I see it as a breakdown in connection. The people you're talking to understand the system only through what they've read in a book or what's been presented to them at a Some data meeting, set. right? It's, uh, it's academia. They understand it only through academics. Um, for me, that's different because I don't understand it that I do now because I read the same thing they read, right? That's everybody's privy to that. It's public knowledge. You want to read it, you can read it. You, you'll know the same thing that those folks know. But you can't, you can't learn in a book what you can learn from being in the resource, um, even if it's in a limited capacity, right? Like some people only know the resource from walking on a boardwalk. That's not the best way to learn it, but it's definitely better than learning it from a book. So it, it came a point where I realized that 
if I had an opportunity to share this place with these people and show it to them and let them touch it and feel it and smell it and look at it, that I, I felt like I could be more effective. Does that make sense? Or maybe have better conversation. Like it, it would, it would show them why you care for what you, yeah. Yeah. yeah be more effective is a good way to say it, I guess. Be, now be that I'm more, about it. Yeah. Be more effective. So, you know, and I, I probably could sit here and think about it and try to remember when was the first time I did that. But it kind of started as just a little thing, you know, where you might invite one person and say, hey, why don't you come with me? I'd like to show you the big cypress. Or, a turkey hunt or yeah, something even. Let's like, go, like, yeah, let's go turkey hunting. Hey, let's go fishing for a day or something. And eventually I started to see it, right? You could see it in their faces and you could – you could measure that success because after that, it was like a turning point where you could have a conversation with those people and now they knew it from outside of that book or from outside of their cubicle or from, um, you know, when you go to meetings and they and the agencies hand you these pamphlets and color maps and um, they hand you, let's say for example, the water management district, they'll hand you a map and they'll show you the region but the regions are indicated by solid colored blocks. So they take a map and say, for example, water conservation area three is just a big blue square. And Big Cypress is a purple square. And Lake Okeechobee is a red square or red circle, right? You don't actually even see what the topography or that aerial image looks like to recognize that you're not just talking about a block or an area but you're talking about grasses and trees and birds and fish and animals, right? So I could tell that there was a difference and that just kind of snowballed. And uh, to the fact where we got to a trip last month that had 120 people on it, you were there, you saw it. Um, that that was the progression of what I started and where we're at. So let's, let's camp out here for a second because I think you said that really well. Um, how hard is a trip like that to pull together? Oh, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's not a word to adequately describe how hard that is. There's, you can't explain it. How, how many, 120 people think, I think I saw in the video you put out, you had 28 airboats, yep. 20 buggies. Yep. So you had roughly 50 of those people to operate and drive and do logistics. And those guys were moving coolers, but they were also people you wanted to be able to talk to elected officials yeah representative like like be able to share their story because they're gladesmen right yep. yeah so um that's that's part of it right so there's no shortage of people with airboats and buggies um anybody can go buy one you don't have to be a type of person or of a type of mindset anybody could buy one so it's important that when you have those people especially when you were there you know I, i'm putting three or four um people on a buggy with a guy and send them off into the woods. You're not holding their hand. So, so for that day, I think we're out there six hours, let's say really you have exposure to this congresswoman or that congressman 45 minutes, yeah. maybe an hour. Maybe if maybe I'm lucky. Hour. Yeah. Like yeah, that's the rest of the time they're with other people. Yep. And it's, so it's important that those other people are a, a good example of who we are and, and what we're trying to do, it's um, it it it's it's an important piece of the puzzle. So, 
when you plan this, you have to plan around that. You have to make sure that these folks um, send home the right message. So what I try to explain to them before these trips is, hey, look, keep the politics out of it. Um, I get it. We don't all necessarily like a certain agency or maybe we don't like a person at an agency, but this isn't the place for that. And what's important here is that you explain in your words to these folks why this place is so important to you. That's what's important. That's what they need to come away with. They need to understand why it is that their constituents all took a day off from work and paid at their own expense to have all this equipment out there um, to share it with them. So, 120 people, we were 20 miles. Well, a little bit more than that, but yeah. From a paved road, right? Yeah. Is that, is that right? Yep. So the logistics of that is just insane to me. I, I don't think people can quite grasp how heavy that lift is. Uh, so that trip took um, about three months to plan. And the trip was initially scheduled for the 16th of March. And two weeks from the date that we were supposed to go, I get a phone call from a member of Congress who tells me that uh, congressional leadership has changed Congress's committee week and that the trip is going to have to either be canceled or rescheduled two weeks out from the trip. And you've got three months of planning into it. Which take everyone at the same value. You've got 50 guys, gals, whoever, that have committed to take a day off work, drive their airboat, drag it across the state. They've postponed their job, their life, their kids, their whatever. Had to find babysitters, find another way to get the kid to school that day. Exactly. So it's not just a, it's not just a, oh, we can just switch it for this congressperson. We also have, (laughs) there's a lot of dominoes that go into that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, and and I, I mean, I have some help. There's some really... If we had this conversation maybe a year or two ago, I probably would have shared with you some frustration about the lack of assistance from people in our community. But looking at it now, there's been a lot of people that have stepped up to the plate. Um, Nyla Pipes has been like a godsend. She has she she has been there for everything. She's helped to plan everything. She's dedicated herself to it. And for someone who's not from here. Um, that's been huge for me. So I, I give her all of the kudos she deserves, but, um, so yeah, so it's been for all intents and purpose, a one man show, right? When you have to reschedule 120 people, I'm the guy that makes those 120 phone calls and it's usually twice as many phone calls than 120. Uh, Um, it's usually five times as many (laughs) phone calls as 120. Yeah. Um, so that was probably the hardest part. And then of course, people's schedules changed, right? So they might not have been available for that day. So the 120 people that were planned to be there, now some half those people had to be rotated out and I had to find an, another group of elected officials and agency staff that could replace them. Um, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was going to send me the regional director from Atlanta. That was huge. I was looking forward to that. And I think that the trip would have had greater great value if he was there um but the schedule didn't allow it so u.s fish and wildlife service ended up sending me um their local guy uh, kevin godsey and their panther team coordinator david shindle it worked out fantastic it was, yeah it was fantastic great. resources yeah sure um but those are just some of the nightmares of those logistics right yeah i 
believe me, I get it. That's still one of the things I'm like dumbfounded by. So I think you've answered this, but let's hit it again. Why do you do that? Why do you take them there? Uh, we got, um, we got a lot of problems in this state, right? We have a, a lot of issues, uh, ecologically, um, environmentally, sociologically, we have a lot of issues and I kind of look at it like we're at, um, we're, we're at a critical point where if we don't do something now to change the way we're going, there's if we've not already hit it, there's going to be a point where we can't change it at all. Yeah. We will reach a point of no return. Yeah. Right. Like we'll, we'll reach a tipping point where you can't, yeah. you can't get back what you've lost. So, you know, and, and the misconception in society is, is that once you buy land or say that that land is conserved, people seem to think that that's it. Okay. It's, we saved it. Big Cypress is saved. It's a national preserve. Check. Yeah. Everybody's national park. It's saved. It's a national park. The reality is it doesn't work that way, right? Um, because man is still changing everything around those places. And even though we're not changing them inside of their boundaries, the changes we make around those boundaries have similar or worse consequences for those places than if we change them specifically. So those changes are happening every day. They're happening now. And in fact, they could be worse because now you believe you can go up to this line that you did not believe you could go up to before. Right. So I, like I said before, I, nobody appointed me to this. Uh, Nobody's paying me for this. There's just something inside of me that's telling me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's what you have to be doing. Yeah. All right. Set all that stuff aside. Like you haven't had anything else you've been working on. I want to talk about the aquaculture project <laughs> yeah. because this is a thing you and I, we first had a discussion, I guess we're, we're recording this in April. We first had a discussion about it, I think in June of last year. Yep. So, so tell people what is the aquaculture project? Let's start there. So, so the aquaculture project, sorry, am I saying it wrong? Agua. Agua. So agua as in the, the Spanish word for water and culture. So we're dealing with the culture of water, right? Okay. Um, so aquaculture is just another solution to a problem. Um, you're no stranger to it. I think, uh, I think everybody listening knows that we have some serious problems as it relates to management of water bodies in the state and Lake Okeechobee being our biggest lake is our biggest problem. And we're talking invasive plants. We're talking nutrient loads. We're talking everything, right? Yeah, everything, right? So I think there's something like 33,000 lakes in the state of Florida. And if you go on to the Florida DEP website, every single one of them is impaired, <laughs> right? To, at one level <laughs> or another. So the agencies responsible for that clearly identify it. But to the best of my knowledge, nobody's found a solution. Um, so I, this kind of goes back to... Um, being in DC and going further down the rabbit hole in pursuing conversations with congressional representatives. And in doing so, right, it's kind of a pain in the ass and you, it's time consuming and you kind of wonder why you're doing it, right? So what do I mean by that? On a day where I 
have nothing to do, which isn't very often, I might pick up the phone and just call a congressperson and introduce myself and say, hey, my name's Mike Elfenbein. Um, I'm involved in these things, and I'd like to engage with you and your staff on these issues. Just random, right? No specific ask, no specific want or desire, just want to create a line of communication so that the people who are responsible for decisions that impact these places have my perspective. Not necessarily the right perspective. I like to think that what I provide is valuable, but they have my perspective. And, and in so they have the sportsman's perspective and a conservationist perspective, right? In, in managing these relationships, um, when things do happen and congressional folks look to somebody for some kind of guidance, they might pick up the phone and call me. You want your phone number on that list. Yeah. And in this case, that worked that way. Um, I got a call from a congressional office, um, and they said, Mike, we know that you are dedicated to conservation issues, and this isn't in our district, but we think that this could help you in the areas that you talk about. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm open. Shoot, what do you got? So, well, we're working with this doctor at the University of Florida in St. John's River, and he's got some solutions that might work for the Everglades, and we'd like you to talk to him. <laughs> I scoff, you know, I'm like, hey, what? okay, but whatever, I'll take what it. What do you got to lose? Yeah, what, I'm, I'm already going down the hole. Might as well keep going. I'm not backing out now. Um, so I spoke to this doctor, and a doctor puts me in touch with a guy who's got a patented technology and has a solution um, that can alleviate a lot of problems. It's not, it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not the silver bullet. It's not going to change everything, but it's going to be a giant step forward in a lot of our problems, right? Chemical spraying is one of the hottest topics in conservation today. Um, harmful algal blooms is discussed by nine out of 10 people I talk to, right? Nutrient loads in lakes. Nutrient loads, eutrophic water bodies, um, discharges to the estuaries. Um, you know, I live here and just outside of Englewood and um, my 40th birthday, which was three years ago, my wife, uh, planned a surprise birthday party and she rented several hotel rooms on the beach and unbeknownst to me invited two dozen of my friends and family to be there well she did it she planned it my birthday was in july and she probably started planning it around this time of the year there was no problems rains came summer got here and we had probably one of the worst red tide blooms that you and i will ever remember in yep. our in our lifetimes so here we are with all of our friends and family uh, on the beach with dead fish everywhere, um, horrible stench in the air. Throat irritation. Oh, yeah, water, water eyes. Yeah, right, the whole nine yards. Um, and, and a constant drumbeat of people screaming and yelling um, on social media, uh, in restaurants, on the beaches, right? Everybody's mad and pissed and rightfully so. I was pissed too, but mad and pissed and posts on social media don't solve problems. They just don't solve them. So I feel like that's worth saying like 27 more times in a row. Yeah, it, but it's the truth, right? And and I get it. It's easy to just type something on a Facebook post and walk Outrage away Outrage doesn't from, fix. No, nah, it doesn't. So fast forward now to where I was before. You, I get this call. We're talking to these people. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an ist. I say that all the time. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a chemist i'm not a scientist i'm not an ecologist i don't have a degree in any of those things right i'm just a guy who 
cares loves about. the natural wonders of our state. Period. That's it. That's all I am. I don't profess to be anything other than that. Um, so obviously, I don't have the knowledge and ability to vet something like that. So I said, you know, I again, this is where communication and relationships work. Over the years, I've I don't know that you'd say they're the best relationships, but there's open doors, right, to, at, at every different agency. So I started with FWC because that's where my pride is in state agencies. I have great pride and respect. That's, and as, a, as a sportsman, that's our home team, right? Yeah, that that those those are our people, right? Yeah. Those are those those are that's the agency in the state of Florida responsible for taking care of the things that I care of the most, right? So I called the FWC and I told them what I had. And they convened a meeting with all of their senior leadership, uh, commissioner, director. Um, and I had this gentleman, Nick Zabo, agriculture, um, and Dr. Dan Canfield from the University of Florida. And we all convened a Zoom meeting because, you know, we were already in COVID times. And uh, everybody at FWC was like, well, you might have something here. Um, let's let's pursue this further. So that turned into uh, meetings with the same level of people at various different agencies. So we did uh, from FWC, we went to South Florida Water Management District. Uh, we went to Department of Environmental Protection. We went to the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. We went to the Army Corps of Engineers. We went to the Department of Interior. And we made this same pitch to all of them and said, hey, look, I don't know if this is good, but you guys are the experts. What do you think? And we realized eventually that, hey, we, we might have something here. Like this might, this might be a tool for the toolbox, right? Um, so it was suggested to us that we apply. At the time, um, Governor DeSantis had just released grant opportunities through the DEP uh, specifically to find new innovative technologies to mitigate nutrient loads in Lake Okeechobee and other water bodies. Perfect timing. You, right. You, you couldn't. You couldn't have timed that better if you wanted to. Right. So we did. We applied to the uh, FDEP for a grant. The total grant money was five million dollars, and we applied for that. And they quickly came to us and said, "Hey, we we like your idea, but we don't think that we could we could give you the entire pot of money. There's other projects in the state that we, we should be funding with this." So. Um, that was the beginning of my education in how state budgets work, right? So yeah, it's easy to say we need money to fix this, but agencies have called something, something called spending authorities. So even if we had gotten the whole $5 million, we wouldn't have been able to spend that money on the project. Um, so FWC did some things, they bent over backwards. Eventually the grant that we were awarded was for a half a million dollars and the army corps of engineers stepped up to the plate and said, Hey, we can help cover the difference. And the army corps said, we will provide you all of our equipment at your expense, at our expense and at your disposal to make up the difference for what that funding would have paid for. And then to sweeten the pot, we're going to give you all of our scientists and they're going to scrutinize everything that you do as you do it to validate whether or not this project has the ability to do the things that you intend for it to do. And what are those things? Reduce chemical spraying, 
right? If we can mechanically harvest aquatic vegetation uh, feasibly, right? Because that's been the detractor to aquatic vegetation it's, it's harvesting. It's, it's expensive. It's there, there's, there's some other concerns like byproduct of, or uh, bycatch and things like that, but really it's cost. It's cost, right? So you've got this machine that has the ability to move at three or four miles an hour and it only has a capacity to hold X amount of vegetation. Once you harvest it, you have to take that vegetation somewhere. You, you, vegetation you, that's 98% water. Right. And, and you have to go, especially on Lake Okeechobee, which is like 30 miles across at its widest point. Yep. If you're in the middle of the lake, you've got to go 15 miles at three miles an hour. Well, guess what? There goes your day. Exactly. Right. And then the other issue is uh, disposal, right? What do you do with that when you get to the shore, right? So typically the way it has worked is it gets piled on the bank on the side of the lake. You got this big giant monstrosity of decaying aquatic vegetation. And Which all- keeps the nutrients in the system. Right. And is hard to find legal in lake disposal correct through some of those same agencies like right. they, they're trying to make it happen but that's hard to find it's Be, not it's not as simple as where's the nearest bank yeah because technically you're creating pollution you're 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 Nutrient you're, load. Yeah, yeah you're putting those nutrients back into the water so it's a it's a never-ending constant circle right so for that reason mechanical harvesting has been cumbersome and inefficient so this uh, company aquaculture um, and their patented process has has mastered the logistics of moving aquatic vegetation. We no longer have to transport it um, by a slow-moving machine. We no longer have to pile it on the bank. We can now turn that into a liquid slurry, and we have the ability to pump it from the spot we collect it. So you would put a barge in the middle of the lake, 15 miles into the lake, and in the middle of a hyacinth patch, and you would harvest it. And the material is brought to that barge so you might have to go a half a mile or a mile but you're relatively close we could use smaller faster boats too right versus the gigantic and you never have to stop you can the only thing you've got to stop for is fuel in the boat yeah you can just constantly collect it so we have the ability to take that material turn it into a liquid and pump it through a hose which is rather inexpensive compared to the machines and send it anywhere we want and in this case, for the sake of this project, uh, we've been working with Brad Fairs and the Lazy JP Ranch um, there in uh, Lakeport. There, Brad, Brad's been on the podcast before. Yeah, and then Brad also does Cal Hunter or uh, Between the Beaches is his podcast. Cal Hunters Unlimited is his is, is his is brand. Busy, but yeah, yeah the, folks should be familiar with Brad. If you're not, I'll put a link. Yeah, to all that in here. Brad Brad cares. Salt of the earth guy. Yeah, he's salt of the earth, multi generational cow calf operation. Um, a, an, an impeccable steward of the of the resource, um, and Brad and heard, a hunter and a hunter, yeah, and a hunter, yeah. That's important. It is. It, you know, it, it is just important to throw it in there. Sure. Like, um, he likes turkey hunt too. I, he, that's why what yeah. I was thinking of. He, he's been duck hunting more, but he, he's been into turkey hunting yeah. heavy this year. Um, Brad heard about this, and um, we really didn't know each other very well, um, and jumped all over it and said, "I want to help." I, I want to help. Whatever I can do to help, I want to help. And, and Brad's ranch is on Brad, Lake Okeechobee. Yes, you, like it's the Rim Canal is the backside of his ranch. Yes, and and the history, the history of his family and ranching that before the dike was there, um, is just amazing. It's and, incredible. Yeah, not to mention Brad is a very talented artist. Very. Um, and his depictions of that lifestyle are just 
they're they're so real. I've got one of his turkey prints in my office. Do you? Yeah. Oh, you're a lucky guy. I yeah. don't have one yet, but maybe I'll get there one day. Um, so anyway, Brad stepped up and made his ranch available. And I'm going to back up a little. So the, the, the way the natural process worked before man uh, diked the lake was in the rainy season, the water levels elevated in the lake. They spilled out of their banks. Uh, two-thirds of the bottom of the peninsula of Florida was probably covered in water. Aquatic vegetation grew in that water. And then as the water receded for the dry season, that aquatic vegetation remained on the landscape. It died, it decomposed, and those nutrients went into the soil. Which is why it was such good farmland. Which is why the EAA exists where the EAA exists, because that dirt, that black gold, is so valuable, right? So essentially what aquaculture is going to do is it's going it's not going to reinvent the process it's going to return that natural process to the system right yeah, it's an artificial replacement of that process right so over years as the lake's been cut off by the dike man has ranched it uh, grown crops on it developed it and used it for our purposes the value of that soil has been depreciated it's not what it should be so we're essentially going to take those nutrients out of the lake where we don't want them and we're going to put them back on the earth where they're supposed to be. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, we're going to make agriculture um, that integral part of the system again, right? Um, there's some people in Florida that believe that agriculture is a detriment to our environment um, but those of us who know agriculture well understand that agriculture is actually a part of the system. And when done properly, it, it, it's part of conservation. We, there is no conservation in Florida without agriculture. 100% agree. And you can take that to whatever level you want versus managing the land versus providing green. Like we've talked about wildlife corridors and things before. None of that stuff exists without those ranchers. Yeah. So without agriculture. So, and, and Big Cypress is a prime example, right? Big Cypress, before the National Park Service owned it, was teeming with wildlife. Uh, it was not unheard of for an annual harvest number on deer to be two or 300 deer. Um, lately here, you're lucky if you break 100. Maybe you've got 70 or 80 deer harvested annually. But you go to the neighboring properties where agriculture is still the predominant use of the land. And not only do you have great abundance of wildlife, but the threatened and endangered species that those public lands were supposed to be preserved to protect are thriving. Are thriving. Panthers, eagles, snail kites, snail kites, caracaras, wood storks, gopher tortoises, you name it, right? I, as a hunter who hunts both public and private land, most hunters that I know would rather hunt on private property mm -hmm. than public property because the abundance of wildlife is that much greater. It's, it, you can. We just talked to the turkey guys, Mike Chamberlain and Brett Collier, a couple of weeks ago on, on the podcast. They said without private land, wild turkeys don't exist as a huntable species in North America. Amen to that. Like, you have to have both. You have to have this symbiotic relationship. You do. In order to, it has to be a quilt. Right. If you will. But no, I, I think that's an important. So to go back to the project, right? So this project has the ability to 
reduce the need for chemical spraying. And I say reduce because you're never going to eliminate the need for chemical spraying. There's always going to be a need for it. It's just the situation we're stuck in, right? Yep. Um, and because we're going to reduce the need for chemical spraying, we're going to reduce the amount of nutrients that continue to cycle back into the system, right? The chemicals, chemicals kill the plants, the plants die, they decay, they sink to the bottom, and they just continue to compound that nutrient load. Yep. So um, we're going to limit chemical spraying, and as a result of the reduction in nutrients, we're going to limit and reduce the intensity and frequency of harmful algal blooms. Um, the, the, the side effect to this project is clean water. Um, as, as, <laughs> I, I say the side effect, clearly it's our goal, but the goal is to remove aquatic vegetation mechanically, right? And the consequence of that is we end up with clean water. And um, when you talk about discharges to our coastal estuaries, one of the reasons we have discharges is because there's nowhere else to send the water. And part of that is because there's uh, a federal decree that says that water going south through the Everglades system going into Everglades National Park into Florida Bay has to be 10 parts per billion P phosphorus, right? So until that water meets those standards, it has to stay on the landscape where those nutrients are scrubbed by aquatic vegetation. Through, through the STAs, through the WCAs, through right. just through water slow movement. Right. So, and technically we're not removing the nutrients. We're just taking them out of the water yep. and putting them into the plants. Right. So that has to all be mitigated somewhere down the road too. So by cleaning the water in Lake Okeechobee and reducing the amount of nutrient load that's in that water, it creates flexibility in water storage. You don't have to have that water sitting on the land for extended periods of time to remove the nutrients because the nutrients are already gone, mm -hmm. right? So those are some of the added benefits to this project. Well, and there's a conversation to be had around discharges. On We're on the southwest Florida coast here, so Caloosahatchee is where we have that conversation, but the St. Lucie, St. Lucie as well. But there's a conversation around discharges of quote-unquote dirty water what we're really talking about is nutrient-laden water right. and the impacts that has on harmful algal blooms. Red tide, if it if red tide's blown in, you're going to see it explode when you get all those nutrients in right. it. If, there's a different conversation if you're pushing, quote-unquote, pure water, right. fresh water. Then you could talk about freshwater intrusion and things like that. It's a different conversation, though, than what we're having yeah, today. Yeah, so, I mean, clearly we don't want... that Our estuaries are dependent on brackish water. That's what makes them an estuary. So you don't want to tip that balance with fresh water. Exactly. But, but I'd much rather see that if we had to have a discharge, that we'd have clean fresh water being exactly. discharged, right? That to me is more, more valuable. So when will we hopefully see more from yeah. this pilot? Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Two weeks ago. Well, you're such a patient guy by nature. <laughs> Anyone that knows you knows how patient and calm you are about stuff. But like realistically, are we a year out, you think, from um, seeing? I, I, I wish, I really wish I could give you that number. Um, that's been one of the, one of the consequences of getting involved in all this is it's been a learning experience. Um, I've learned things that you couldn't learn in a classroom. Um, I've learned things about government and the bureaucracy and how it works. And this project is being funded. So this is how 
how tangled the web is, right? The project's being funded by DEP. That's one state agency. It's being sponsored by the FWC. That's another state agency. And co-sponsored by the Army Corps of Engineers. Now, federal you, now you've got a federal agency. Each one of those agencies has a permitting process, right? So we've had to explore the permit on the FWC side and explore the permit on the Army Corps side. Funding is not easy. Yeah, we were awarded a grant. Just getting the money from one state agency to another state agency took uh, October, November, December, June, six months. Just to get money that was authorized by the state from one state agency to the other state agency. And we still had to work out the logistics with the Army Corps and what that looked like to them and what kind of manpower they had to have, right? So I, in my world, these things just take a day or two. In the real world, there's no such thing as a day or two. Um, Stuff happens at a glacial pace. Yeah. But I think one takeaway from this is we're trying to do something. That was a conversation you and I had a year ago is what if this doesn't work? And I don't, I'm not saying I don't think it'll work, but what if this doesn't work? What we're doing today, everyone's pissed off about all the time. We've got to try some different things. This may be a a, a path on the road to discovery, and I'm, I'm not dismissing anything with that, but I am saying we've got to try something. So I kind of set you up with when will we know something, more so that you would give the answer you did because I want people to know this is being worked on. Yeah. Like we're not just sitting back and not doing anything. And I'm saying that we, I'm saying FWC is not just sitting around not doing anything. The agencies are not just sitting around doing anything. Let me tell you, man. Um, so as a guy who once stood at the back of a room and yelled so loud at the FWC that I had a law enforcement officer standing three inches from the back of my head, I've come a long way, right? And I understand why people get upset and yell at the agencies and, I get all that. I've evolved. I'm, I'm, I still get hot-headed every once in a while. But I will tell you that the people at the FWC and the people at the Army Corps of Engineers that I've worked with, I feel privileged to work with. Those people really care. They really get it. They are stuck working within constraints that they have the inability to change. Quickly. Quickly. They are as frustrated, if not more so, than the average person is at what they see. Those people didn't take those jobs to become rich and wealthy. No. Those people took those jobs because they believed in what they were doing. And um, Kip Froelich, who you've had, I believe, on this show Yeah, before, good friend. Yeah, good dude he's retired now he took a lot of crap from people but he was the guy that pushed this at the fwc he was the guy that said look we don't have anything else we have to do something different even if this fails again none of us expect it will even if this fails we tried something different exactly and we're going to learn from it and it'll give us a direction to go if you fail. Yeah, it's not a it's not a binary. No. Win fail. It's it's a learning curve, right? right? So thank you 
as a stakeholder in this, thank you for pursuing this thing yeah, because you could have easily said, no, this isn't my, you don't duck hunt. No, never duck hunted. No. Um, but you can change that. I hear I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> you grew up bass fishing, but you're not an avid bass fisherman no. anymore. Yet you realized what was going on with this resource and went out and, and sought an opportunity and a potential solution. Or like you mentioned earlier, a tool in this toolbox to, to augment what we're doing today. And yeah. I mean, we still have, right. We still have to work on other things. We still have to work on uh, the point source pollution. We still have to address that. Right. But the reality is, is we all know there's nutrients in that lake that need to come out and they've been there for decades and nobody's done anything about it. Absolutely. So if we don't start now, this goes back to that first question is we're at a critical point. If we don't do something now to change the way we operate ecologically in this state, if we're not there already, there's going to come a point in the very near future where there's no turning back. So I'm going to put, I'm going to put you on the spot because we've been talking for almost an hour. This is not all you work on. <laughs> no, I actually go to work for a living. Actually. Well, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about something else more recently. You, you recently started working on that. Well, you've been working on orange hammock for a couple of years now, right? Yeah. Like helping bring it to fruition as a new WMA. Yes. Um, and now you're sitting on the sportsman's committee kind of for that, right? Is that? Yeah. So they have a stakeholder. Uh, um, yeah. Stakeholder advisory group, right? It's supposed to be like the group that, puts the input into the forming of the WMA. And I think they do that on every Probably. WMA they bring online. This is my first time being I, involved in that. And they look for a stakeholder that's kind of regionally located because this is right down the road. Literally like, 20 minutes from here. Yeah, it's it would be your home turf if it existed 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, but what else are you – I know that you still participate in Everglades Restoration. Like, like I, do. I know you do the South Florida Ecosystem Recovery Task, Task Force. Force. Yeah. Um, still do the RAC. Um, so I'm not, yeah, so rack isn't what it used to be. Um, and I am no longer an appointee on that organization. You did that for several years. Yeah, I did. Uh, that's actually where I met Nyla. Um, Nyla and I were both, um, appointees of at the time, governor Scott. Um, and we had a different governing board at the time, but, uh, and even I remember when I took that, I was kind of skeptical right because it was a once a month meeting you had to drive i had to get up you have to drive across the state palm beach three hours yeah uh-huh. you ever take wait till you hit palm beach and you hit traffic and then another three hours <laughs> in palm beach. yeah um so yeah but i will say that 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 was i look back on that as a stepping stone to where we are now right it it opened a lot of doors it gave people in the agencies an opportunity to know Mike Elfenbein a little bit better and know that I wasn't just the guy hurling stones from the sidelines, that I was very much willing, ready, and able to be in the game and be an active participant in advancing restoration goals and conservation initiatives throughout the state. So um, I still participate on those calls. The rack is not what it was. It's now a quarterly meeting. Um, it's been kind of watered down. It's, uh, it used to be a very accurate representation of all the different stakeholder groups in the, in the region. And now it's become mostly, uh, government people and, um, yeah, it's just not what it was. Yeah, It's not what it was. Right. And I this is the first time in its history that a sportsman has not been, uh, a participant of that organization. So 
you you must have taken a master class in segways because my last question for you is what do you see as the challenges facing sportsmen in our state uh 1000 people a day moving to florida urban sprawl um disconnects from from the natural world within society um video games netflix youtube um even for sportsmen who appreciate the hunter's message on those social media platforms, I think slowly but surely it's eroding our fabric. I think it's, um, it's, it's, so I started this kind of like, uh, you know, hunting kind of like, uh, when social media was just starting to be something in its infancy. Yeah. And I still had an opportunity to learn the woods, right? To be a woodsman, to understand how it flowed and how you got around and maneuvered and how the wildlife used it and, you know, where you needed to be to be successful. And I think that part of that is the sportsmen of today are, it's not a slight, but they, they go on Google Earth, they look at a map, they say, I'm going to go hunt right there. They they don't put the due diligence in. They show up there. There's three or four other guys that did the same thing. They have some kind of squabble. It turns into a social media debate. Um, it paints a horrible picture of who we are and what we're doing. And it just furthers that disconnect. I think that's part of the problem. It, I haven't published it yet, but I'm working on a, a written piece about kind of the the notion of the loss of, of legend or lore yeah. in, in this because everything is so available to us with the click of a button now. When I was growing up, I had an uncle that was a liar and he would say stuff like there were so many doves you couldn't see the sun. <laughs> and I went hunting with my dad, always hoping to see that. Like I always kind of had this hope of seeing that thing and this experience that was grand. Or I always, always had the hope of seeing a Black Panther. Like growing up as a kid in Florida, you always heard, oh, there's Black Panthers, there's Black Panthers. Science tells us that's not true, but you can easily dismiss that now. Well, that was kind of a cool thing to be out in the woods and keep hoping <laughs> you're going to run across a Black Panther. Like yeah. that, it gives it some some uh, some scare and some mystique yeah. and some. It's like this thing that I think we've lost in today's age. Everything's so clinical now. You can go. You want to learn how to elk hunt? I could be an expert on elk hunting in like three weeks of YouTube videos and <laughs> buy some gear and you know just throw enough money at it. I could be a guy. Um, so it's just, a, I, I think that's a really well, well stated point because it's a thing that we're, we are definitely losing our identity if we're not careful. Yeah. I mean, there's other things, right? It's not just technology. Um, again, a thousand people a day are moving here. Um, you, you drove down here. I'm sure there was no shortage of developments. If you drove down river road coming down here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, there's, there's a lot of things, right? Mo <sighs> I, I was driving to work uh, yes two days ago, and the car in front of me hit a quail. And I watched the quail bounce off the windshield, land in the pavement, and it was flopping in the road. I, I knew it, it wasn't going to get up and fly away, so I made a U-turn. I went back, I threw him in the truck, and I drove. I have an assistant that works for me. I went to my daily routine is to bring her my paperwork. I pulled up in her driveway with my paperwork in one hand and a dead quail in the other and she goes what's that i said dinner she goes what i go yeah somebody hit it in the road you mind if i just borrow your hose on the side of the house and flush it out and throw it in there and 
so the next day I went to see her again, like I do every day. And, um, she goes, you know, I was just talking about what you did the other day with, with my husband. And, um, you know, if, if we have an apocalypse, can I come live with you? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, uh, I could feed you a couple meals. Maybe she goes, man, she goes, most people wouldn't have done that. I said, yeah, because there's, there's just a, a breakdown. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect where people don't understand where our food comes from. And that's why I think people are so anxious or willing to attack agriculture and say agriculture is part of the problem. Um, and again, agriculture is, is, is as much, I guess the word is mutualism. Uh, yeah. Agriculture and hunting. Uh, I don't know. I think, I think there's a breakdown in society of understanding the natural world. Mike, before I let you get out of here, um, where can people find you if they want to find you in the dreaded social media world? Uh, I, I would say Facebook is probably my platform. Um, Mike Elfenbein on Facebook. Um, if you're going to yeah, look you're me not up, an active Instagram guy. No, I, I have an Instagram account, but I really don't do anything with it. I, I, I really don't have the time. Yep. Um, I don't. But I, I will say this about you from a social media perspective. You've always been willing to engage with people that are willing to engage. Sure. Like you don't want to get into a bar fight with them, but you always are willing to have a conversation. Somebody's willing to have a conversation. Yeah. And, and I get it. Right. So I, 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 I'm, I'm not a, I'm not jaded. I know I can be abrasive. I know I come across often. Um, first impression is, Oh, who is this gag ass? You know? Um, but it's simply because I've dealt with so many dumb people <laughs> that yeah, I figure the way I look at it is if I come across abrasive and you're really interested in engaging in these things, you're going to continue to engage with me. And if you're just one of those people that likes to take a pot shot and run, well, then that's exactly what you're going to do. See you later, man. I just don't have the time for that. Um, there's a lot of people who do this and try to glorify themselves or put themselves or their organization on some kind of platform and solicit donations. And, um, people ask me, how do I pay for the things I do? You work hard. I, <laughs> I put in more time. If I need to pay for more stuff, I don't, I'm not the guy that's good for good about asking people for their money. Cause I know how hard it is to make that money. And, um, even though there's people who are willing to make those contributions, if they want to make them, make them. Safari Club International is a great example. Um, they've always been willing, hey, Mike, we noticed you did this trip. Is there something we can do to help you? Uh, Everglades Coordinating Council is the same way. Um, even the Miccosukee Tribe has made that offer to me. I'm not good at asking people for their money, um, period. So, yeah, I'm just me. I'm just a guy. They always ask me who, who, who are you, with? Who, who are you, what organization do you represent? That's always, a, that's always a befuddling question, right? From every politician. Yeah. That's the first who thing. Who are you with? That's the first thing they ask you, right? Who are you with? Are you a lobbyist? Who are you lobbying for? Who's no, I'm, I'm, I'm your constituent. Well, you got to be for an organization. Well, technically I represent many organizations. You know, I sit on the board of the future of hunting for Florida. Um, I was recently appointed to the Isaac Walton league. Um, I'm on the Everglades Coordinating Council. I'm a Safari Club International member, but I'm me. It's right. just it's just me. That's not what defines you. Yeah, I, I I am a part of those groups because those groups are working towards our mutual goals. But I come to you as me. Mike, thank you for giving us so much of your time, and thank you for all the hard work you've been doing Thanks, and continue man. to do. Don't stop. Yeah, <laughs> I don't plan on it. 
Thanks again to Mike for being so generous with his time and, and inviting us into his home and agreeing to come and do the podcast. So uh, if you guys want to connect with him, you can find him on Facebook. That's Mike Elfenbein. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for checking out the podcast. You guys are killing it. We really appreciate how much you, you guys are telling your friends about the show, sharing it on social media, wherever you can, whenever you can. Um, it, it, it means the world to us. So thanks to everyone. We hope you have a great week and we will see y'all next week. Bye.